welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Piers Gooding is a Mozilla Foundation Fellow and researcher at the Melbourne Social Equity Institute at the University of Melbourne Law School. His main research interests are disability law and policy, international human rights law, the law and politics of mental health, and empirical legal research. Dr. Gooding describes his scholarship as an interdisciplinary undertaking that blends theoretical inquiry with applied qualitative research at the local, national, and international levels. He has collaborated with the UN Special Rapporteur for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the World Psychiatric Association on recommendations for alternatives to coercion in mental health. In this interview, he discusses his journey pursuing a human rights agenda in mental health and the conceptual and practical difficulties facing those trying to intervene upon entrenched practices of institutional care. He then talks about the connection between his long-standing work to prevent coercion in mental health and the digital, data-driven direction taken by the field as a whole. He elaborates the regulatory and ethical issues he has uncovered at the intersection of mental health services and data-driven technologies, and gestures at emerging methods of algorithmic accountability for addressing some of these issues. So, Dr. Gooding, you have broad theoretical um, and interdisciplinary interests. Why don't you tell our readership a little bit about how about your background and how you got started working in this field? Sure. So I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, um, and I suppose through a formative experience with a family member experiencing um, a pretty serious crises and entering mental health services, I gained an interest in the politics of mental health. My first degree is actually in history and cultural studies. Uh, and I think through that degree, I was able to investigate some elements of the mental health services that I was encountering at the time uh, through a, a historical lens, looking at the, the social and political conditions that gave rise to uh, mental health services as they are. When I was a kid, I grew up uh, not far down the road from a large-scale uh, Victorian-era mental asylum or a psychiatric asylum or mental hygiene institution. Uh, it had various names through the 19th and 20th century. But I was um, fascinated by, by, by the role that institution had in the city, uh, and I investigated its its origins and its changing relationship to, to the city and its very utopian ideals in the beginning to, to reflect a, a civilized society uh, and its uh, degradation into a place of exclusion, segregation and, and violence really against people with disabilities. And I mean, that continued into my lifetime when I was a 12-year-old kid, the the last remaining residences in that institution uh, burnt down and uh, six men with intellectual disabilities who were in a locked ward uh, were killed. I remember as a kid learning about one of the men who hadn't received a single visitor in his 30 years of life after being deposited in the institution um, as a baby. So I think that kind of really grim history uh, sparked my interest in, in the broader cultural and social and political 
place uh, that psychiatric institutions and psychiatry more broadly and psychology have in in uh, Western history. Uh, through my uh, degree, I was able to um, gain a role as a research officer at a advocacy organisation for uh, family members of people um, in the mental health services, and uh, I was undertaking policy-based research and, and law reform-focused work, uh, and I was able to then interact with academics who were working in this space, and I was invited to do a PhD in, in, a, in a law faculty at Monash University. Through that work, I was able to um, focus on what was a major development at the time in the mental health world, and that is the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which essentially came into force uh, the year before I started my, my PhD. In that year, prior to my PhD thesis, I actually took something of a, a break from work and traveled all around the US uh, trying to meet with as many uh, activists and advocates uh, and interesting thinkers in the, in the mental health space uh, as I could. And, and through that, I was able to engage with some really tremendous um, activists and thinkers, uh, including the likes of uh, Leah Harris and uh, Judy Chamberlain and people who are regulars in, in the Madden America uh, website. And that really uh, gave me a sense of some of the global political struggles and, and work that was going on to, to try to address some of the, the harms that have occurred in, in mental health systems. I was also lucky enough to um, be at a, a lecture that was presented in, in Melbourne uh, in which uh, a visiting uh, human rights lawyer from, from New York City was joining us uh, by the name of Tina Minkovitz, Esquire. Uh, and through uh, Tina's presentation on the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, I was introduced to this idea of supported decision-making. Uh, and supported decision-making really spoke to me as an idea that would uh, challenge, I think, some of the broad assumptions that seem to pervade uh, social and cultural responses to, to mental health crisis, to, to personal and emotional states of extreme distress. By reframing the issue as one of uh, looking at the conditions in which a person lives and, and assisting them to realise their, their, their will, their preferences and, and their broader kind of um, rights uh, related to housing, related to all the kind of social and economic uh, things that make up a good life. Uh, and not to sort of diminish or uh, overpower that person in, in the process. And so I set to focusing my PhD on, on this idea of supported decision-making and this question of, of what the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities meant for mental health legislation. You know, the same legislation that was... Uh, in operation when that asylum on the hill by my my childhood home was uh, was in its final stages, and uh, I was very interested in in the kind of history uh, of policy and law leading up to that moment of of new forms of uh, law and policy that centered the 
apparent rights of, of people in crisis, but which in practice appeared to um, establish different standards uh, and different rights for those individuals, what in my view were uh, discriminatory exceptions uh, for someone by virtue of being diagnosed with uh, mental illness, to use the terminology. It was really interesting. At one point, I was um, concerned that I wouldn't be able to conduct a PhD in, in a law faculty because I didn't have a law degree. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, and I was at a disability rights conference here in, in Melbourne. And one of the speakers was a fellow named uh, Professor Ron McCallum, who ended up being the first chair for the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is the UN advisory body that essentially uh, provides interpretive guidance about how to apply the convention. Ron is a uh, sort of famed lawyer here in Australia, a labour lawyer, grew up in a working class suburb here in my city. And uh, I managed to find him in a quiet moment in the conference and asked him whether he thought it was uh, uh, a good idea for someone who doesn't have a law degree to do a PhD in a law faculty concerning the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And interestingly, he said, historians make the best lawyers because they understand the context in which a law was written. And that's always really stuck with me. Uh, and driven my work uh, insofar as I'm interested in the social and political context in which laws are applied. So, hence, I consider myself a socio-legal studies or socio-legal scholar. Yeah, so I find it really unique about your work that you, you know, you're in this socio-historical realm, but there's also sort of a unique combination, I think, of lived experience perspective, like the most micro possible level, right? All the way sort of up through international policy. Um, and so I'm curious how you would describe sort of your strategy for reform in psychiatry, given that your, your background has led you to um, uncover a lot of deep inequities. Well, it's interesting. I don't think my strategy or aim has ever been to reform psychiatry. I mean, I've uh, come to the sort of sense that psychiatry reflects a lot of societal views on on distress and, and madness, if you will. Um, and so I'm more interested in, in those sort of social and cultural and political conditions that inform the kind of ideas behind uh, professions like psychiatry. Um, I uh, have tended towards the human rights agenda in mental health, not because I uh, think that human rights is necessarily an, an ideal organizing principle for all social justice claims. In fact, I uh, have reservations about human rights as an organising principle. I have concerns that it tends to individualise issues by focusing very much on the individual and, and, and their, her, his rights, um, that it is bound up in questionable political agendas over the 20th century, um, and particularly the kind of driving force of neoclassical liberalism or neoliberalism, and that there are things we, we lose by pursuing socio-political objectives in, in legal terms. I think that 
uh, puts a lot of truck in the law and in courts and, and in lawyers. However, that said, I, I do think that the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is an extremely powerful resource for achieving uh, justice in the mental health context. And, and I think it does something very transformative by drawing uh, what had previously been a, a narrative that was very much couched in terms of, of health and illness and pathology uh, into a space where the social model of disability operates. And a social model of disability just very simply and crudely refers to viewing uh, the social and environmental physical conditions as the disabling uh, influence on a person. So people have impairments, various impairments, and that's just part of uh, human diversity. Uh, but the disabling uh, force is, is the interaction between that impairment and the environmental and uh, social barriers to that person uh, participating and flourishing on an equal basis with others. And I think that does something really profound. It, it draws attention immediately to those conditions. So to answer your question or go back to your question, I think rather than trying to reform psychiatry, it's, it's never been my aim and, and I, I don't think it is today, but, uh, but I am very interested in, in, in drawing attention to those um, social and, and environmental conditions in which um, harm is done and, and, and trying to remedy that. And I think the convention provides a really um, strong frame to address various aspects of, of that injustice. Sorry, my toddler's coming to rush into my room here. Uh, this is part of the joy of um, being in a, in a city that's effectively in lockdown and having to work from home. So I'm sure listeners and um, readers will forgive me for that. Oh, certainly. Certainly. We're all, we're all struggling with our home lives right now, I think, a little bit. So I really hear you about um, the sense in which, you know, a human rights framework can sort of represent a passing of the buck of responsibility to perhaps to legislators um, and to courts. Um, but at the same time, right, a lot of the work that you've done highlights the areas in which that framework may be the most potent, right? Like I'm thinking about the work on alternatives to coercion. Um, so do you like to talk a little bit about how you have defined coercion for the purpose of that work? Um, yeah. Some of the, yeah, some of the arguments made against coercion at the international level. Sure. And um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll even go back a step and, and just address the, the first point about human rights being a powerful uh, uh, advocacy tool. I mean, it really does carry a strong moral and political weight around the world um, in, in some countries more than others and in some circles more than others. But I think it does carry strong normative force. And I think what makes the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities uh, unique compared to other areas of, of international human rights law is that people with disabilities were deeply involved in its negotiation uh, right from the beginning. So you had uh, over 120 different disabled people's organisations and, and umbrella disabled people's organisations that represented thousands of organisations around the world. Uh, and people with experience in the user survivor or uh, the movement of people with 
psychosocial disabilities, as the terminology goes, were absolutely strategic uh, in the, those negotiations. And so what you get is a, a piece of um, international human rights law that, although described by some as soft law in places like Australia and, and the US where there aren't sort of strong regional human rights courts like there are in, in, in Europe, uh, it still has a, a strong... Uh, normative power in sort of uh, setting agendas and providing a, a kind of central focus point for uh, broadly agreed upon norms. Uh, and so in, in relation to the second part of your question, well, what, what's the definition of, of coercion that I, I'm using and the basic arguments made against it at the international level? The definition of coercion that we used in our work on alternatives to coercion is uh, a very broad one that, that referred to both threats and compulsion that, that I suppose involves physical force. Um, so in other words, the action or practice of persuading in a way that's characterized by the use of force and threats or forcing someone to do something in the context of mental health healthcare provision. So this could occur in nominally voluntary uh, service provision where someone says, well, you 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 if you don't receive this service or take this uh, intervention, we will uh, force you to do so. Uh, but it obviously also occurs in, in the context of people placed under uh, involuntary uh, commitment or, or uh, being subject to uh, forced interventions under, under mental health legislation. Um, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities poses a fundamental challenge to that kind of intervention and demands a response that uh, prioritises supported decision-making and, and broader support to uh, exercise one's legal agency and, and, and assert one's kind of personhood as a as a as a legal subject to use some uh, some of the terminology uh, but basically it's just to say that you know these interventions can no longer happen to people simply on the basis of them having a disability and that uh, any uh, interventions um, must respect people's human rights and and occur on an equal basis with all others and that is a that's a break from uh, centuries of 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 not just legal and political traditions but um, so not just in law and policy but also in in intellectual traditions you know ethicists throughout the 20th century really um, in general uh, had this view that uh, personhood was uh, dependent on, on someone having some essential human characteristic uh, and particularly uh, a certain cognitive ability and a certain capacity to reason. So for, for those who fell outside of this kind of idealized subject, sorry to get philosophical, but uh, they were immediately in trouble because they didn't meet the sort of essential criteria for being a moral person. And, and I think that starts to explain some of the uh, the horrors that you see through the 20th century where uh, things like the Nuremberg Code, which requires uh, uh, informed consent for any kind of medical experimentation, were just presumed not to apply to people uh, who were diagnosed with um, uh, a psychiatric uh, condition or mental illness. And 
equally, there were over twenty. Uh, there were around twenty-four international human rights uh, law instruments that were developed through the twentieth century, and yet um, uh, it was just presumed that uh, they they could be. Uh, there were exceptions that uh, applied to people with particular diagnoses. So, I think that. Uh, intellectual tradition uh, is fundamentally challenged by the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. But of course, it's uh, sitting there at the high heights of international human rights law. And so, translating that into practical political change uh, that, that, that changes um, the way mental health services are provided and, and the laws that are operative in, in, in our various countries uh, is, is something that is a work in progress. I see my work as, as part of that work in progress and, and I think that foundational involvement of, of persons with uh, disabilities, to use the terminology, but particularly people with experience in mental health services or, or people who have experienced abuse and, and, and feel uh, they have survived those interventions, uh, is, is absolutely critical at, at as many uh, different stages of the research uh, as possible from, from research design, or well, particularly research design, but right through to uh, the way that research is, is conducted and, and then how it's communicated and, uh, and, and so on. Um, so that's, I suppose, what, what has guided me and it's allowed me to do some uh, terrific research with some incredible collaborators and uh, people who are sort of real uh, intellectual leaders in the field, people like uh, Kath Roper and uh, Eleanor Flynn, Dr. Anna Arstein Kerslake and, and, and Professor Bernadette McSherry. I mean, and I've been able to meet other, other leaders around the world, Professor Amita Danda, uh, you know, uh, Professor Jared Quinn, Theresia Degener, like there are just such uh, tremendous people. Uh, uh, Alberto Vasquez is, is uh, an incredible force that uh, he's working in, in Geneva to, to bring some of the uh, political commitments of the user-survivor movement to uh, the, the heart of kind of international human rights law. So just staying at the level of the UN for just a moment, I'm curious, given the history that you've described of the sort of contested terrain of personhood um, from an intellectual perspective, were there any major disagreements or notable debates in the generation of those recommendations for alternatives to coercion that you think are interesting? Certainly. I mean, the whole terrain, to use your term, has been characterized by debate and intense disagreement. Uh, I mean, some of the key provisions on issues uh, related to issues of coercion in mental health were the subject of vigorous uh, debate during the negotiations. And uh, the negotiators came to something of a, um, a, a, a negotiated silence, as one of my colleagues, Annegret Kampf, puts it. Um, a negotiated silence whereby everyone was able to agree to the terms, but it wasn't explicitly clear as to whether uh, all kinds of forced intervention in the mental health context ought to be uh, abolished, uh, at least in very formal terms. Looking at the text, it's not clear. And that interpretive um, silence has caused enormous 
disagreement about what the convention means in, in relation to involuntary mental health treatment uh, and interventions. And that's been uh, evident in debates even between major um, human rights committees within the UN. So even within the UN apparatus, there is a major disagreement between uh, human rights treaty bodies, the, in particular the convention, uh, Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, uh, and then on the other side, the broader human rights uh, committee. So the Human Rights Committee have said, well, involuntary treatment is, is, is okay, subject to the rule of law and uh, opportunities to appeal, and so long as it's in the least restrictive uh, alternative. So more or less what the current arrangement is in, in most uh, countries that have mental health legislation. The Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, on the other hand, have unambiguously said that all forms of coercive intervention in the mental health context must uh, must end and must be abolished. Um, and you've seen that kind of disagreement uh, travel down to, to the regional level, to the individual country level, right down to, um, you know, on conference panels and in uh, public forums and uh, in, in probably the organising rooms of, of mental health service user organisations and so on. I mean, I've seen that debate play out in the 10 years since I, I started my PhD in, in rooms all over the world. Uh, and, and it's been really interesting and, and um, it's been a powerful powerful sort of uh, force or platform for, for conversations about the nature of, of these kind of interventions and, and and I suppose that disagreement ended up in something of a, of a deadlock, uh, which is why the work on alternatives to coercion is so important because I think on both sides of the debate, there is broad agreement that coercion is used too much, that it is um, unnecessary uh, in almost all situations if the conditions are right and that more work needs to be done in order to find ways to avoid its use. I mean, that's simplifying it a lot, but I, I, think, I think that's the crux of it. And so everyone agrees that there is a need to pursue uh, law and policy reforms to reduce and prevent coercion. And by pointing to that body of research, I think that can be a useful political strategy to get everyone moving beyond uh, just incessant disagreement about the foundational idea of whether it, it, it uh, forced treatment is something that can or cannot be abolished. Yeah, so there is broad consensus then that psychiatry and mental health settings are pretty reliant on coercion. You would say that that's the case, like there's a solid acknowledgement of the problem and reasonably clear definition in that sense? I mean, it's just manifestly the case. If you look at public health services, um, it's typically the case in the kind of high-income countries that I've looked at that um, about 50%, between 30 and 50% of people in, in public mental health um, services, particularly hospital wards, are there in, in uh, 
under some kind of involuntary uh, status according to mental health legislation. So I think it's manifestly the case. Uh, I don't think it's it's a point that that even warrants um, debate. Oh, and then and then in in community services, um, there's uh, considerable use of uh, forced treatment through mechanisms like community treatment orders or assertive outpatient treatment, so so called, uh, which in in countries like Australia and and the UK and and Canada and the US, I think accounts from anywhere between sort of thirteen percent or more uh, of 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 community. Uh, mental health encounters. I think that's going to vary around the world. I think my stats there is is from is from Australia, but uh, I think you'll find similar rates around the world. Yeah. So that partially answers my next question, which is, um, I found myself stumbling on the notion of degrading treatment in reading alternatives to coercion, mm-hmm. and it seemed to me that there's kind of a slide, perhaps, where you know it's quite recognizable that detention and treatment without consent um, are operating in contexts when it's often inappropriate and unnecessary. Um, but what about something like degrading treatment? Can you describe um, what that means? That relates to um, a part of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the part of international human rights law related to the Convention Against Torture. Uh, which in its full title includes uh, the Convention Against Torture and Cruel, Inhuman and Degrading Treatment. And that part of the Convention Against Torture is often often missed. So it's a provision that is is bound up in this very heavy uh, notion of torture, which is uh, crucial to some people's framing of these issues. So, for example, Tina Minkovic has, has really... Uh, use that provision as a central part of her understanding of of, uh, of forced treatment and the and the relevant issues, um, and it is crucial. And and so has the Con- committee on the rights of persons with disabilities, which has has indicated that um, forced treatment is is very much activating. Uh, provisions in international human rights law regarding cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, uh, and. I think that's uh, just a, a useful way to think about some of these issues. I mean, I don't know how useful it is to to distinguish those particular uh, elements or what's inhuman compared to what's degrading. Um, there are specialists who would uh, go into that. That's not an area of my expertise, but uh, it is, I think, a, a crucial part of the conversation. So zooming back out a little bit then, your reviews have found, sweeping reviews have found that, you know, explicit efforts to prevent or to reduce coercion nearly always provide positive results. So with research and guidance becoming available to service managers and to clinicians, what would you say are the notable blocks to adoption and to implementation? I think uh, culture is a is a major block uh, where uh, it would be challenging for many service providers to shift perspectives and and I think that's informed by legislation which uh, may require um, interventions or, or may be interpreted to 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 require interventions that are uh, uh, coercive. 
Um, and then I suppose the political pressure that comes from governments who are uh, are playing the risk card and really amplifying uh, risk-based concerns. And, and I think that issue of risk is a, is a problem more broadly across you know, culture and, and politics and law. And then I think there are barriers to um, research agendas and, and intellectual uh, work that needs to be done to to prioritise um, uh, the reduction of, of coercion. Because although we found uh, a, a great deal of research that supported interventions uh, being effective in reducing and preventing and even eliminating coercion, uh, we, we, we were surprised by the, the sheer lack of research in, in this area. And uh, I think that's a really interesting question of why has the reduction in coercion been of so little interest to um, uh, the broad field of mental health research? Why has it been of, of so little interest? The important point is to to really interrogate that question and uh, and and draw people's attention to it and then start to demand research agendas be shaped around this this idea of of uh, what, what next? If, if we are going to take the convention seriously, uh, what next? Uh, and we need, uh, in effect, a sort of transitional uh, period in which, in which that movement that you, you described takes place. Uh, and so I, I, I think uh, there are uh, many people who could answer that question um, uh, really productively. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure you have your ideas about what the blocks are, but um, one I think for for me as a researcher is is that research agenda, and and I've just been shocked by the the lack of research that has gone into these questions. So, for example, there was a another survey of um, alternatives to coercion that was done quite recently uh, by Kadui Barbado. And uh, it found that there wasn't a single randomized uh, trial with this in aim of reducing coercion in, in the US since 1999. You know, I, I think that's astonishing. Uh, and I read some of the uh, quotes from the, the former director of the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, which is arguably the largest yeah, mental health research institute in the world, uh, based there in the US, uh, who... who uh, openly describes the many billions of dollars that went into uh, research into neuroscience and genetic and very highly natural scientific areas of, of interest that are uh, almost um, uh, obsessed with the, the pathophysiological uh, biological basis for, for uh, mental health diagnoses. Uh, and and then he, that same person openly uh, describes how how that research investment didn't result in uh, the needle being shifted in terms of real life change uh, for people who are using services and family members and so on. So I think uh, that that in, is is a major blockage when it's not even seen as a priority in, in the distribution of resources for, for mental health-related research. It's quite unbelievable. And, you know, I'm tempted to give a psychologizing answer. Like, some of these questions are so grotesque in the recognition of what are common practices um, that people often don't want to delve that deep. Um, but maybe if I if I can just prod you a little bit more on this, um, 
I wonder if there are any practices that you've written about in recommendations that you're aware might be seen as radical um, to service providers. Any intuitions there on whether or not, you know, what kind of a leap it might be for service providers to implement some of these in practice? Well, in in our report, I suppose we tried to um, provide options because we, um, none of us in who are authoring that report, uh, and I just must make a nod to my my colleagues, uh, Professor Bernadette McSherry, Kath Roper, and and Flick Gray, uh, none of us uh, assumed that there would be any one intervention or program or practice um, that would magically uh, transition uh, responses to distress and crises uh, overnight into a human rights compliant wonderful response i mean that, that would be uh, perverse because it, it would presume some universal solution to what are um, um, extremely varied um, political, social and economic conditions in which these issues play out around the world. Um, so we provide, tried to provide a spectrum of, of programs and practices and initiatives, some that were in the mental health services and some were, that were uh, explicitly based outside of mental health services that were, that were sort of peer-run, informal, uh, community-driven uh, processes. But then we also looked at those very formal uh, policy changes like the um, safe ward strategy uh, and, 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 other, and other kinds of interventions. Um, I think in terms of the, the particular practice that might be uh, alarming or, or, or seen as a radical uh, change for mental health service providers, maybe the open doors policy. So there's been some research in Germany that indicates that uh, wards that had open doors uh, tended to have um, lower rates of conflict between um, people who were who were who were there in those wards and and staff, um, and and had better outcomes on several um, indicators. Uh, and I've heard even privately um, uh, psychiatrists in my own country who who were talking about an instance in their hospital when uh, construction of the hospital meant that they had to have open door policies as a, as a matter of health and safety just for the period of the construction and that they were surprised by the benefits that came along with that. Uh, but I think if you proposed that or ordered it of hospitals, it would cause uh, great alarm. And I think it's perhaps for those reasons that I described earlier, the, the cultural blockage to, to uh, thinking that anything except some element of coercion is required when it comes to uh, mental health crises or the legal problems that arise when, when clinicians and hospital administrators are fearful of uh, liability. Uh, and the kind of broader cultural and political pressures from tabloid papers that will 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 seek responsibility if something goes wrong, and uh, and usually that lies with um, the service providers. So I I I hope we've tried we we've been able to provide a, a wide range of op- options for people so that they can try to identify things that are specific to their uh, circumstances. But I suppose the the broader methods that we've proposed of ensuring that these are human rights informed changes that uh, people with lived experience 
ideally of, of the very services and communities in which these changes are taking place are, are there at the, the very centre of the uh, change initiatives. I think these are, are, are the kind of crucial ingredients uh, more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we switch gears a little bit then mm -hmm. to something that <laughs> has broad sweeping effects both inside of mental health context and also outside. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for some of us, and I think for myself and, and for readers of Madden America, it might be a little bit easier to see the connection between coercion in psychiatry and the ramp up of algorithmic and data-driven technology in mental health care. And this is another area of your focus. Um, mm. And so I'm curious about how you understand this connection. Um, and I'm reminded of the mention of, of risk and liability avoidance mm. as well in this context. Sure. Well, I'm a relative newcomer to um, issues concerning algorithmic and data-driven technologies, you know, things like artificial intelligence, machine learning and robotics or other technologies of automation. Uh, but I developed a strong interest in this after witnessing, as many other people have, and uh, certainly readers of Madden America will be aware, the, the rise of, of digital technologies in, in the mental health context. I mean, I, I've focused on the, the the good, the bad, and the trivial when it comes to uh, digital technologies. And I suppose one of the areas I am interested in is the connection between coercion and some of the uh, algorithmic technologies that are arising. Uh, and I think your point about risk is, is a really important one because a lot of uh, algorithmic and data-driven technologies are driven by uh, a um, function to predict outcomes based on mass amounts of data or predict certain things. So it might be predicting the likelihood that a person is experiencing uh, uh, altered states of consciousness or psychoses or the likelihood that someone may be um, uh, uh, harming themselves or, or intending to uh, suicide. Uh, or it might be about predicting um, uh, the likelihood that a person will experience uh, a diagnosis of depression. You know, I think predictive uh, power is what people see in algorithmic technology as being so useful. But it's interesting with predictive power because uh, you can predict something, but if the... Um, responses, the typical responses aren't, aren't there, then what's the value of predicting it? That's one of the questions that I'm quite interested in. But to draw it back to coercion and risk, well, I suppose there's a, a grave um, potential for algorithmic and data-driven technology to uh, amplify that tendency in, in our societies to um, sort of obsess over risk and have it frame our legal and policy responses to, to distress and, and, and emotional crises um, by, by further monitoring and uh, observing people in order to prevent these things, particularly if people start making claims about the predictive power of, of technologies to, say, predict um, gun violence, as has been the case. I mean, there are 
stories from uh, Florida in your own country where, where state powers have been granted to collate uh, information about the mental health service use of students and then uh, compare that with social media posts and provide that to uh, police in order to ostensibly prevent gun violence. And I think that's a, that's a good example of how uh, these kinds of technologies can be uh, drawn into um, coercive impulses within various state agencies. Um, and I've seen studies into the use of um, GPS monitoring devices in uh, closed wards uh, and in forensic psychiatric facilities. And uh, in all of those studies, I mean, in very few of those studies have uh, the human rights implications been considered, have the um, issues of dignity and uh, other ethical concerns with uh, the experience of the person and broader societal impact being considered. I just finished a, a, a broad survey of, of studies into um, the use of algorithmic technology in online mental health initiatives. And we came up with a list of about 128. Wow. Uh, and only 19 of these studies even considered ethics. Uh, and and when I say considered, that only means in some cases just having a one-sentence reference to broad ethical issues. In others, there were maybe two paragraphs given to it. But that is a serious um, uh, oversight in the research. And, and in not a single one of the 128 studies was a person with lived experience of services or an advocacy group involved, even at the level of basic consultation, let alone involvement in conducting the research, in setting the agenda, in, in, in disseminating the research. So I, I think the potential for um, those technologies to be used in unthinking ways uh, to amplify some of the worst aspects of uh, current mental health service arrangements uh, is, is, is very serious indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am a little dismayed to hear that there were so few studies that made any mention of ethics. Like I think about the tech industry, you know, um, and ethics is something that everyone is pretty excited to kind of give a little head nod to, but ultimately brush off, right? Because in very simply profit-driven consumer tech industries, um, you know, usually ethicists are kind of like the um the party poopers like mostly what they're doing is putting the brakes on various practices um so it's a little bit surprising for me to hear that um data and technical ethics are less on the agenda um in the mental health sphere and i'm curious um about what you think specifically are the problems to putting those issues on the agenda in mental health contexts that you know, sometimes are at least a little bit more sensitive, I would think, to the importance of handling personal information delicately, for example. Well, I think as a starting point, I, I should say that uh, there are exceptions to the kind of trend that I pointed to, and there is good research being conducted. I know, uh, you know, examples from the UK and US where um, you know, people who are clinicians have really engaged 
critically with some of these questions and, and have engaged with uh, people from the broad kind of movement of, of those with lived experience and, and peers and so on. Um, but I, I, I do see this as a trend and I suppose it's part of a kind of techno-solutionism uh, in which people view technology as swooping in and solving all of these complex uh, social and political issues as, as being a, a serious problem. And, and I suppose some of the kind of more uh, severe bio-focused uh, traditions in, in psychiatry could be accused of a, of a similar kind of techno-solutionism, presuming that some uh, pathophysiology merely needs to be addressed via um, uh, medication in order to resolve what is, in fact, a, a complex uh, social and political uh, and personal problem. Um, so um, I, I, I think the way to address some of the gaps in thinking about the the ethics and the law and the politics of um, digital technology in the mental health context is to bring in those with uh, lived experience uh, right from the foundational discussions about research agendas through to the conducting of that research. I sound like a broken record, but uh, I, I do think this is critical. And there are uh, many people in that position who have... Um, uh, great knowledge. I mean, I'm currently doing some work as a as a Mozilla fellow uh, on on issues around digital technology in in mental health, particularly online. Uh, and I've got this incredible advisory group uh, made up of people who are doing tremendous work in this field: um, Lydia Xed Brown, Leah Harris, James Horton, Jonah Bosowicz, Keris Myrick, Kalichi Abuzo, um, and Alberto Vasquez. And I think. Uh, it's it's in in my discussions with this group, there was this a sense that uh, work needs to be done to uh, improve uh, the digital literacy of advocates in the mental health space, uh, but by the same token, not to lose focus on ensuring that big tech companies and some of these other stakeholders uh, who are sort of new to the mental health space, computer scientists in particular, uh, become literate in the the politics of of mental health and in some of these really pressing uh, issues that have characterised uh, work in 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 mental health policy and law and in responses to distress uh, in in the last few decades. But uh, I, I think trying to um, promote debate at the moment and, and draw these issues out of the shadows and into the public uh, is, is also crucial because uh, in many ways the technology is, is at an early stage. Uh, and so it, it becomes difficult to talk about things like the ethics and law uh, because they're being worked out at the moment. I mean, when I talk about law, I'm often uh, talking about social political issues um, and it's perhaps even misguiding to say that I'm focusing on the law. But I think the law uh, can come in once those ethical and social and political issues have been worked out and once the, the harms are very clear or potential harms, uh, at which point you, you can start talking more fruitfully about regulatory and legal uh, impacts. And I think that is a crucial step to addressing what you describe uh, of, of ethics uh, being uh, cast aside 
or being something that's easy to sign up to but uh, doesn't really bind anyone to any formal agreements in the same way that regulation and, and law will. I really appreciate your pointing to the shared solutionism, perhaps, of medication in psychiatry and, you know, products in, in the tech industry. Um, and to me, it's of great concern that the sort of move fast and break things ethos of Silicon Valley, you know, would invade um, the rendering of, of mental health services online, you know, such that a lot of the work, a lot of the anti-coercion work that you do would be, you know, it's like one step forward and two steps back almost um, right. in the use of a lot of these technologies. I think that's a really important point, and it's something that those who are more grounded in the politics of mental health or in these issues uh, uh, are going to have to grapple with because there are new forces at play. Uh, there are computer scientists, and this is a sort of intellectual tradition and a, an area of the of sciences of that. Um, people in the mental health context haven't really had to grapple with uh, and, and data science. Uh, but then, of course, those those big tech players. Like, so I think that is something that is really going to have to be grappled with in coming years. And I think one uh, useful way to do so is to look toward the broader movement for algorithmic accountability. So I see great potential to bring together, I suppose, the broad movement of, of peers and persons with disabilities, uh, service users and so on, uh, with the, the broad movement concerned with algorithmic accountability. And I suppose what I mean by that is uh, the tradition of um, work concerning internet politics, digital rights, and the um, kind of force that algorithms and data-driven technology have over our lives, uh, and, and efforts to ensure that those technologies are subject to good and robust governance. Um, and algorithmic accountability is concerned with not just making sure that those algorithms are explainable, that decisions are subject to um, being challenged and so on, but also more foundational questions about whether particular technologies uh, ought to be developed for particular purposes at all. And if so, um, who governs them? And that is a really pressing question, I think, for those who are interested in the politics of, of mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's difficult for people to grasp Maybe it has to do with the sort of false binary of, you know, science and humanities or math and, 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 and the humanities um, is that, right, like the governance of algorithms is basically like who gets to decide how to make meaning <laughs> of the massive amounts of data that we're able to collect, right? So in a big sense, it connects to the, you know, the participation of users and survivors with lived experiences of, you know, being intervened upon, right? Is that kind of what you envision? 
Well, that's absolutely right. And that's a really interesting way of, of framing it. Um, I, I hadn't really thought about governance as, as meaning making, but it's certainly the case. I mean, not this area of digital mental health technologies, for want of a better term, is an area where knowledge is currently being produced at a relatively early stage. And I think now is the time to intervene in shaping that knowledge. Um, and like you say, who better to um, to inform the meaning that is given to these various initiatives uh, than those with lived experience of using services uh, and, and those who uh, have lived experience of distress outside of the use of services. I mean, there are really promising technologies uh, being developed um, that attempt to, I suppose, bridge the divide that you're describing between the life sciences and the, and the social sciences, um, or natural and social sciences, um, and which really uh, draw from people's direct lived experience, you know, people facing addiction and crisis and, and, and people who have developed peer support using online spaces and um, sort of citizen science principles to, mm -hmm. to organise and, and come up with new forms of knowledge and uh and i think there's there's great potential there for for really creative and productive uh, collaborations to make the most of of these different forms of technologies absolutely so thank you so much peers for for talking to me today and i'm so looking forward to to seeing more of your work out there in the world oh you're welcome emily and i've really enjoyed this conversation so thank you so much Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.